This will be lesson number four, Characteristics of the Contented. This is our second class on this topic, and for the recording today is December 3rd in 2023. And I'm changing a little bit of the schedule uh, for the class. I thought we'd spend more time on these characteristics, but I've decided that we only need two of the... What I, what I think are the chief characteristics of understanding contentment. And there are other elements or other characteristics that will be helpful, but I don't think we need to study those now. We'll look at those when uh, in the section coming after the next section. So the next section is going to be on the dangers of discontentment. And then after that will be uh, the skills involved in becoming content. And we'll look at some more of the characteristics uh, during that session. But as we build the framework for understanding contentment, uh, I think last week's class and this week's class should suffice uh, to lay the groundwork for what we're, what we're after. And so the, what I call the, in my mind, how I'm thinking about it is the two great pillars of understanding of contentment. The first is understanding God's active providential care of the world and us and our circumstances. So last week was dedicated to how we should think about that, how it's God's plan, how that plan is being executed, and who's the one doing the execution of that plan. If we have that in our mind, we can then begin to build a trust as to that there is a purpose and a reason why things are happening we don't have to understand that reason, uh, but we do have to live with that plan. And so meditating on God's providence in, a, in an active way is a, is a helpful start for one of the great pillars of contentment. And the second great pillar of contentment is the idea of meekness. And I, I think meekness is underappreciated in its contribution to contentment. And so we're, I want to remind you that we're, we're picking up this, we're, we're approaching the class uh, based on this seemingly obscure comment that Thomas Watson made, that contentment itself was not the grace, but rather it was, it's the accumulation of other graces, of other virtues coming together. And I think he's on to something, and, and without trying to draw too fine of a distinction, uh, being able to separate or distinguish one component from another is helpful. And, and so while we're not looking at contentment per se, we're looking at these tools that, with the right understanding, put us in place that we can start experiencing contentment. So keep that distinction in your mind, uh, and we'll, we'll be able to, uh, I think, make sense of all this. So meekness, uh, we're, we had a whole class on meekness. It's been, I don't know, six or seven years now, something like that. Uh, we looked at a class on, on uh, the scope of meekness. We're going to review some of that material and then add some more to it today. So it's a word that's a bit out of use. Uh, we, we don't think about meekness as a word in our common vocabulary very often these days. So let me just let me ask you guys to shout out a few different ideas as to what what uh, meekness means to you today. What do you what do you think it means? What do you think it means to other people today? Meekness. What it means to people today or what it means 
either one. Just what, what, what do you think the common understanding of meekness is? I know what it means to other people from what they told me. They think it means weakness. Me- tends to be, you know, weak with a W? Is that what you were yeah, saying? Yeah, weak, meekness it's means... It's not a virtue, it's weakness. Yeah. It's not a virtue, it's weakness. Okay, yeah. Well, this is coming from Christians. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Doormat. Doormat. Might be another illustration, that's right. Yeah. Any other Any other thoughts? Strength under control. Okay. Yeah. So when we think about meekness, uh, mousy is a word that is sometimes used in a little, maybe a little older frame of an, of an unbiblical understanding of the idea of meekness. But there are really facets to meekness. There's not just one way to think about meekness, and that works to our advantage in this class because you need all of those things to properly understand what's being communicated in the scriptures through the idea of meekness. But sometimes it's quiet. Uh, meekness can be uh, expressed as quietness, uh, gentle, um, easily imposed upon, easily imposed upon, submissive. And the, the Bible uh, uses all of those expressions in its uh, communicating of idea, but it also adds um, humble, uh, patient, and unresentful. So there's an attribute of meekness that's not thought of much, is that meekness is not resentful, and it's being imposed upon. So our Bible translators have a very difficult time trying to capture this word meekness, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New. And we looked at all the words and usage a while back, so we're not going to do that today. Uh, Sometimes you'll see it as poor. Sometimes you'll see it as lowly, gentle, and humble. And all those things are true. It's the problem... is that it's communicating many different things and we're trying to capture it in a, we're trying to reduce the number of words we use to capture it and it's difficult to do. So let's, let's just look at a few expressions in scripture to get a sense of what's being viewed here in 1 Peter 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, the arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, right? So, which is very precious in the sight of God. But this, the gentle is meek. That's, that's what he's saying there. But you can see how it's linked with quiet as well, that there's something that's not noisy about, about meekness. Um, Matthew 5, 5, whatever, whatever this means... It seems like it would be important. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That, there's a big promise on this side of the equation, right? The, the meek get this. So whatever meekness means, when we're talking about inheriting the earth, it's obviously something of great importance. Uh, Jesus, uh, both in Zechariah 9 and here in Matthew 21.5, he says, Tell the daughter of Zion... Behold, your king is coming to you lowly or meek uh, and sitting on a donkey, the, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we're looking at Zechariah 9 and over here, Jesus is describing himself as meek. So we, we find different ways this word is 
coming to light in these expressions. And so we want to see how these ideas contribute into the ecosystem of understanding understanding meekness. Uh, and, and I think one of the problems is meekness, because of its, maybe its uh, oral similarity to weak, maybe that's why it's sometimes contributed or looked at as in a negative way. Uh, I, I, I don't know how, I don't know how it got uh, shifted in its meaning, but, but it clearly has. Uh, but not on, uh, we need to keep in mind not to be afraid of this word meek. In fact, we should be endeavoring to become meek in all that we have. In Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. But the gentleness is meekness. So whatever is meant in here, the translators are saying, mm, gentleness seems to fit about the best that we can. Self-control and against such things, there is no law. So meekness needs to be elevated, ironically, as it's communicating humility and lowliness, but our understanding of meekness, when we put it in these categories as fruit of the spirit, the inheritance of the world, obviously meekness is important. So how is it meekness comes to us and relate to contentment. And I want to start with that contentment is our first study that helps us apply what we learned in the class on meditation. So we, the process of becoming content starts with meditation. And one of the things we meditate on is this nexus between um, the practice of informing our mind and this practice of being satisfied. And it's a really helpful connection here by Wilhelmus Brackel on meekness. He says, this virtue, meekness, also resides in the heart. The understanding, having been enlightened, perceives the vanity and transitory nature of all that is to be found in the world and that it is not worthy of our being disturbed about upon it being removed from us nor of going to great lengths to attain it. And he's got this idea that he's relating meditating, this virtue and meekness, as something that resides in the heart, but having come from the mind. And particularly as it relates to contentment, he's saying that all that is to be found in the world, if you're, if you're striving after things, uh, are going to great lengths, that's how he's saying it. If you're striving after things, or if something is taken away from you, you're not going to be disturbed by that because the meek individual has a settled mind and has cultivated this virtue and is able to endure the changing circumstances of life. So this enlightened understanding comes to us with many positive things. Uh, it it affects our desires, it affects our peace, it affects the amount of anxiety or panic we might have. And that uh, Brackle also wants to emphasize um, that this is a grace that grows. So it's not a one-time hit. It's not like justification where it's comprehensive and at one time. This virtue grows in us through exercise, which means it's something we have to think about all the days of our life. So it, it shapes us, it reorients us to our circumstances, 
And this continued dependence upon God for continued enlightenment continues to settle our heart. And that's the goal here. So he writes, this will loves this virtue. It embraces it. And by way of exercise is increasingly able to control and govern the affections in order that they do not become too violent and too disorderly. So here we see this this nexus between the mind and the heart, the exercising of our understanding of things like providence and what we'll look at other things we submit to, but up till now we're just talking about providence. By exercise our mind, we settle our heart. We govern our affections so that we're not disorderly, we're not anxious, we're not, we're not too distraught over things. We're of a more settled nature. And it's, I think it's helpful to find a way to get our hearts to settle down. And the avenue by which the path that takes is through the mind and understanding. Well, understanding what? Well, so far, it's an understanding of providence. We'll look at some other things today, but it's understanding providence. So John Owen, uh, he has an interesting idea in this building contentment in, in the mind in his commentary on Hebrews 13, 5, illustrating the distance between covetousness and, and contentment. He writes, it, that is contentment, is a gracious disposition of the mind, arising solely from trust and satisfaction with God alone against all other things, whatever they may appear to be evil. It's this tremendous satisfaction that comes through the mind of understanding what God has done what he is actively doing in the world, and how I can positively respond to it. So, Brackle, Owen, others have seen the path to contentment lies through the mind, affecting the heart in understanding the will of God. That's, that's the idea behind pursuing contentment as it relates to meditation. But it doesn't stop there. It continues. So, Matthew Henry has... Uh, a thought that I think is worth conveying. He says that um, there is meekness toward God and it is the easy and quiet submission of the soul to his whole will according as he is pleased to make it known, whether by his word or by his providence. So Henry expands on this understanding of meekness to apply it in a way that I think shows the scope of the word and the, the, the freight that it's allowed to carry. So he describes it as an easy and quiet submission. An easy submission. That goes back to that idea that I was referring to in the definitions of being imposed upon, right? Being imposed upon is a really important element of understanding submission. But you can impose things on people and not have that imposition received well, right? That's, that's, we've all been imposed upon, right? But that's, that's not, it's not being imposed upon that makes you meek. It's being imposed upon with an easy and quiet submission. Submission to what? That's the question, isn't it? Well, as Henry describes it, the whole will of God. Okay. What does that mean? His acts of providence and his word. These two things together are designed 
to be an imposition upon you. And meekness says, I will receive this with gentleness, humility, and lowliness. I will think about these things, and I will be easy and quiet about what God is doing with his revelation. So it's really important here. We look at the whole will of God. That's how, that's how Henry describes God's imposition to us. He describes it as his whole will, and then he divides it into his word and providence. And so the critical piece here we want to pick up on is that our response to this imposition is the same regardless of the form it takes. So if we find our circumstances is something that is imposing on us in a way that we don't like immediately, or we find a claim made in the scriptures that God has said, you need to do this, you need to think this way. Either way, we have an easy and quiet submission to what God has revealed. Now, you can discern the whole will of God. It's not hard. The first thing we look at is, what has he done? What has he done? His, his acts of providence are his revealed will in our circumstances. And the Bible is his revealed word to us, which tells us his will. So it's not the obscure things that often give us problems. It's the very clear things that give us problems. How God has unfolded the world is his will. It's his eternal decree being executed. So let's look at the idea of submitting an easy and quiet submission as it relates to providence. One of the ways that, one of the reasons why I think this gets easier for us as believers um, is that we, we have to acknowledge that God reveals himself and the language of the confession by his upholding, directing, disposing, and governing of all things, great and small. Those are the four words that the confession uses to describe God's active providential concern for the world. And meekness says, get in your understanding a review of what's going on around you and make a quiet and easy submission to it. So Henry has uh, some other thoughts here. It is the silent submission of the soul to the word of God the understanding bowed to every divine truth and the will to every divine precept and both without murmuring or disputing. The word is then an engrafted word when it is received with meekness, that is with a sincere willingness to be taught and a desire to learn. So here Henry is summarizing these Acts of providence and God's word, he calls them every divine truth and every divine precept, which is not a bad way of looking at it. Uh, The truth of God's revelation to us is contained in the world. It's God's will. The temperature is what it is today. It's God's will. Our health is in the condition it's in. We, We know this. How? Because it is. That's what he's doing. That's what he's done. So the the imposition upon us is a very real thing. God is constantly imposing things on you, right? You didn't wake up and have someone solicit your opinion on today's temperature or weather or political situation or the shape of the continents or anything else. God did those things. 
It's your job to accept that fact. It's your job to be quiet in your submission to whatever it is that he has revealed. So Henry writes, um, the believer, he is not afraid of anyone taking something away from him. From such a person perceives all men as being but tools in the hands of his God, whom he will utilize to his advantage. Hmm. Somebody takes something from you or somebody gives something from you, right? So the immediate, the immediate response we have is looking at that person, right? They did the right, they did something nice to us or they did something bad to us. And Henry's saying, no, you're missing the point. It is true that somebody might have done something nice and they might have had evil in their heart. You probably don't have any idea what was really in their heart. But Henry says, take a step back and recognize that God used them as tools to reveal his will through providence. Now, if you can stop for a moment and see through your circumstances that God is orchestrating something here, it gives you the ability to be quiet and to take that submission easily. But if you react by looking only at the present face of these circumstances, you're bound to be upset by the messenger. I don't like so-and-so. Look what he's doing to me. Look what, how nice this person is because of what they've done to me. And Henry is saying the person who really understands meekness and providence and God's word says, God's working through these people to bring about something. And that's a good thing. So I'm not going to get distracted by the person or the events. I'm going to be able to step back and see this is God's mechanism for the unfolding divine truth or precept that uh, he is trying to reveal to us. So Henry has uh, one more comment. Uh, one more comment here. He says, when the events of providence are grievous and afflictive, they are displeasing to sense and crossing our secular interest. Meekness not only quiets us under them. So this virtue of meekness is the enabling to be quiet under afflictions, but reconciles us to them. Meekness not only is able to say settle down, but it's able also to cause you to embrace those circumstances in your life and enables us not only to bear, but to receive evil as well as good from the hand of the Lord. So this is, this is difficult. Uh, no, nobody is saying this is easy. It takes a lifetime to learn these things. And uh, due to time constraints, I don't want to spend much time on this, but uh, I don't really like these examples. They're excellent examples, but they're extreme examples. Uh, so Job, Job is quiet. We all know the story of Job. Things get taken from him as if health gets taken from him. The only thing that's not taken from him is his surly wife, right? And so Job has everything gone from him. And yet in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And he tells his wife, can we not ex expect good things and bad things? And so Job is in a just the um, pinnacle of being quiet and submitting to what God has done. Those are probably not the circumstances most of us find ourselves in on a day-in, day-out basis. Another extreme case is with Nadab and Abihu. They offer this strange fire during this inaugural ceremonial event. 
with the children of Israel offering sacrifices, and they, what they did was displeasing to God, and God killed them right on the spot, just summarily executed, dead right there. And all God says to, to, uh, to Aaron is, I'm holy. And if you come before me, you need to be holy. So Aaron held his peace. He was able to discern what God was doing through his acts of providence and his word. But he held his peace. Now, most of us do not experience things like what Aaron did with Nadab and Abihu, but they are given as examples to us of people who have been able to quiet themselves under very difficult circumstances. So we're going to move on to the next section here in just a moment, but what do you think about this idea of meekness causing us to be easily imposed upon, involving this quiet submission? I suspect in, yeah, it's a whole lot easier to be quiet outwardly. And I suspect Job was not as quiet inwardly as maybe what we might like. And I suspect Aaron was not, but they were both smart enough not to outwardly do things to jeopardize their situation. It's true. Yeah. Dan. I'm just here to throw down the gauntlet today. I don't doubt that Everybody sitting in this room is probably, well, there's a great amount of difficulty what, what we're trying to wrestle with here. I don't doubt that we're all probably on board with the concept that you just clearly taught in that segment that the Word and God's providence take precedence and governance over what you feel. But lest we fail to know what time it is, as Christians, it's worth pointing out that there are large camps of professing Christians that you are directly assaulting with that teaching. This is taking a very strong foothold among professing Christians, succumbing to the spirit of the age right now. So this is war, is what you're basically doing. It is. It, it, this is a difficult idea for many people, many people to believe. Um, there's, there, there are, like with many doctrines, there are a lot of presuppositions nestled in here in various places, and... I, I, I don't think they would disagree that I believe these things. I think they would disagree with the foundational doctrines underneath it Absolutely. that uh, would lead us to this. Primarily providence. <laughs> yeah, and providence uh, you know, is difficult. If something happens and I don't understand it, then I, I go to the Word. And if I spend a lot of time in the Word, when something happens, I might not be as caught off guard. I know there's a close relationship there, and I really like that. Yeah, there is a close relationship, uh, and one of the points that we haven't really we're going to address toward the end of the sessions, uh, you you just don't need to know why. You're not promised why, you don't need to know it. Full stop. No apologies. No explanation. If you want to know why you're in the wrong business, uh, it's, you're not going to get it. So the more you desire to know why, what you're really doing when you insist on knowing why, what you're really doing 
is you're judging God. Yeah. Internally. Internally, you want to be the, one, the final arbiter of the rightness of these circumstances. And I'm sorry, but you are just not smart enough to understand what's going on. So. Probably also more than the distinction is this, is the weakness in accepting anything you know, coming from God, but that does not necessarily mean that we have to just sit there and say, oh, well, just accept it and not necessarily act. If there's poverty, we help poor. If there's criminal action, we seek out the criminal who could do the justice. Uh, and I think part of the reason probably this type of thing gets rejected is because, yes, there's these two, and Christianity is a lot of like this, paradoxical things. It's like, yes, we do act, but the heart attitude uh, is like, that's a very tricky thing to do. It's like, yes, you're pursuing justice, but how do you have Those points are all going to be covered in our section on objections. So we're going to we're going to get to that because it is important. But you can only do so much each week. So. so. One thought about being easily imposed upon it makes me think about um, humility from Philippians uh, two and Romans twelve um, to count others more significant than yourself, or to think rightly of yourself, not think too highly of oneself. And and some of it is a lot of times when. I react wrongly to others, it's because I'm overvaluing myself, my time. How dare you interrupt my time? How dare you object or, or interrupt my purposes, my thoughts here? Um, but those passages are, I think, commonly associated with how we deal with one another, and that's true. But I think it implies and, and leads to include our relationship with God. So are we being humble before God and saying, God, how, how can you interrupt my plans here? How can you interrupt my thoughts? Um, or what often happens is, are we thinking too highly of ourselves and overvaluing, again, our intelligence, our plans, that if we're truly seeking to be humble, that being imposed upon starts to become a lot easier because we realize um, one of the things we tell our kids is, it's not about you. It's not about me. Um, and as soon as I can start to accept that, then what happens to me when someone sins against me, it's not about me. Um, the sin is against God, ultimately. And I can be, uh, I can act in response to the sin against God more than I'm reacting to the sin against me, in that sense. Yeah, that's, that's true. And one of the problems here is that it's, all these elements are multifaceted. You could, you could, you could say that, and you could just as easily say to that same person, God, how dare you use these tools right now to interrupt my life? Uh, so there's, there's, more, there's more than one vector for how we bring all these things together in our thoughts. Uh, Jonathan? Second, how difficult it would be to self-evaluate whether you're weak or not. I'm not necessarily a man of exceptional power. <laughs> so I don't know, you know. It's easy to say when you're not a king, I'm me. But I fear what would happen if I were a king and what would be revealed by having authority over others. So it's just an exceptionally hard thing to discern through because, you know, not that it, I don't have opportunity to be unique or break weakness, but 
they just don't have as much opportunity as they or much as obvious opportunity as they would be and so forth and so forth. That's right, yeah, yeah. We, we all have ways we can sin that have been fashioned for us. Well, let's, let's move on. There are some other things I want to pick up on this. I want to try to bring, pour in the ingredients and see if this cements. So I want to bring you back to this idea of Henry describing this meekness to the whole will of God. And so I'm not trying to be... Um, Really, I'm not trying to be clever as much as I want, to, I want to turn it around and say it positively. So I'm giving you two different ways to express your weakness. So number one says, I will gladly submit without reservation or resentment all that God has written in his word, and I will not add to it nor take away from what he has written. It will be my only rule for faith in life. That's... You can make that personal profession and you would be exhibiting meek qualities through saying something like that. And number two, I will gladly submit without reservation or resentment all that God has revealed through his upholding, directing, disposing, and governing the events and circumstances of my life and the lives of everyone else. So this prevents you from being upset about what he's done for your life, but it also prevents you from being upset at what God's done with somebody else's life, uh, which is God's providential care is true for both of those. So I, I, I restated these positively uh, to capture this essence of the whole will of God being revealed to us. Um, Henry makes this additional comment. He says, when God's anger is kindled, ours must be stifled. Such is the law of meekness that Whatsoever please God, pleases God, must not displease us. What, whatsoever pleases God must not displease us. So we can't be upset at what God is doing when what God is doing pleases him. The goal here is alignment, right? The goal here is mental and affectionate alignment with what pleases God. I mean, you don't have any idea what's right. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not taking your opinions, right? I don't need to know what you think about these things. God's ordering the world. He's the one who is upholding, directing, disposing, and governing. And it must be because it's good in his eyes. So I need the alignment with what he has stated is good. All right, um, I want to move to the next section here, uh, particularly as it's, it's viewed for uh, meekness and submission in, in a slightly different light. Uh, I want, so I want to pick this back up again. Um, Thomas Watson offers an interesting idea on submission, particularly, uh, and, and how it relates to contentment. He says, God's end in all his providences is to bring the heart to submit and be content. And indeed, this pleases God much. He loves to see his children satisfied with that portion he does carve and allot them. It contents him to see us contented. Therefore, let us acquiesce in God's providence. Now God hath his end. So Watson's getting right to the point again. It's God's end, his purpose, the telos of it all. 
to bring us to submission and to be content because God loves to see his children satisfied. So you could take a look at this view in God's providential dealings as saying, when I get them to bow down to my will, then I'll be happy, right? There's a nefarious taint, isn't there, in thinking about God just imposing his will on us and making us like it. You're going to eat those vegetables and you're going to like it, right? I mean, it's, there is a dark desire in people to impose their will on others and to make them like it. Is that how you think of God and his work of providence? Or do you see him as a loving father in heaven, carefully orchestrating all that happens to bring about your satisfaction, your happiness, your contentment? We'll, we'll get to these positive elements toward the end of the, of the uh, series. Um, but today we're thinking about it in submission that we need to recognize we don't know what's best for us. We don't know what's good. We have no idea, none. God does. And his decrees are not arbitrary. His actions are not arbitrary. And they're not malicious. He's good. He brings the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So if you're having swift thoughts that this isn't quite right, just remember you're censuring God for his judgments. And you don't want to be in that position. You want to be, step back and say, yeah, he's good. He's wise. He knows what he's doing. Let's submit then. So submitting to God's providential care enables us to enjoy and to glorify him forever. Now, you can always depend on Jonathan Edwards to help us push the needle toward understanding a bit about God's glory. So we're going to look at uh, this couple of quotes here from Edwards that I really hope will bring home that there's more at stake than just sort of bearing up underneath this great weight of difficulty. If you think that's what's happening, you're really misjudging the character of God. That's not what's at stake here. So Edwards writes, so God glorifies himself towards the creatures in two ways here, by appearing to them, being manifested in their understanding. God moving in your mind to understand him. He glorifies himself by that and in communicating himself to their hearts, and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. So here he's, he's bringing together this idea that when your understanding is enlightened, enlightened about what? About God himself. God is glorified in this. And then when it works its way into your heart, rejoicing, delighting, enjoying, God is also glorified in this. God's orchestration of providence and his declared written word are there so that you can rejoice, delight, and enjoy what God is doing in the world and what his truth communicates to us in his word. So you've got this union again of the mind and the heart, the understanding and the affection over here. So he has one more, um, one more quote here we'll read. And 
uh, this is very consistent with what we are taught of God being the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. God made all things. And the end for which all things are made and for which they are disposed and for which they work continually is that God's glory may shine forth and be received. To be received. From him, all creatures come and in him their well-being consists. God is all their beginning and God received is all their end. You were designed to appreciate and experience God himself. So he made all things. He's going back to creation, which was our first component of our study in providence. And the end for which all things are made and which they are disposed, language taken right out of what we would understand in our confession, his works of providence. And they work continually so that God's glory and his presence might be in your life. This isn't the fate of the gods. There's nothing Greek about any of this. They're not, they're not hidden in obscurity in a fog and in clouds and we have no idea why they would do what they do and they're all competing. No, it's your Father in heaven. He's doing all these things. So meekness can easily and quietly submit or be imposed upon to God's revealed will because God is good and he's kind and he loves you. That's why. So... Let's take a couple of quick conclusions here. Meekness and godliness are held out as being synonymous. In Psalm 37, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Do not fret, only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for their place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Yeah, you look around, you see what's going on. Rest, wait patiently. Why? Because he hasn't finished executing the plan that he set forth. Do not fret, get your mind settled, be easily imposed upon. Because of him who prospers, because of God, what's happening over there? Settle your mind. Be easily imposed upon the circumstances that God has orchestrated here. It's only going to cause harm, this mental fret. Get your mind right, which gets your affections right, and you inherit the earth and enjoy an abundance of peace. That's pretty cool. So let's look at our, I think our last reference here. Maybe I have two. Um, Jesus gladly identifies himself with meekness. So strong is this attribute among other characteristics we can look at that Jesus says, I am meek. So John the Baptist in this passage of Matthew 11 has sent disciples to go find Jesus, right? Go, go meet this guy and see if he's really the Messiah. So they come and they talk to him. And then Jesus has an opportunity to bring condemnation to Chorazin and Bethsaida because they did not receive the word and the works that had been done in them. He's given a warning. Then he turns to this section, starting in verse 25. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good to you in your sight. 
All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And even in these passages, when Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples and to the others, he'll use language of providence. Father, you have hidden these things. That's a providential care of the world. God is hiding truth from some people. For so it seemed good in your sight to reveal certain things to me and to you. And all things have been delivered to me. Another providential care of the world. God is orchestrating all manner of things. And Christ is the one who is actively upholding, disposing, governing, and directing all of these things. There is a plan, and it's unfolding to a great end. And Jesus says, learn from me. Look at me. I'm meek. I'm gentle. I'm lowly. This last passage I want to look at, uh, just a couple of points that this theme of meekness runs throughout the New Testament. And here the writer is drawing a connection that I don't think would be um, evident just at a quick reading. Uh, but in James, thir- James 3, verses 13 to 18, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above, that is the fruit of the Spirit here, is first pure, then peaceable. It's gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. But just notice this. These works are done in the meekness of wisdom and that this is a gift of the Spirit to come and empower us that we can be gentle and willing to yield. Willing to yield. Meekness is important. Let's call it the second pillar of these characteristics of contentment. The first is that God and God alone is the one who's created all things and who upholds, directs, disposes, and governs of all things. And then meekness is the way by which we receive the revelation of providence and the revelation of his word. Do I convince you of this? Do you have any closing thoughts? Anything strike you as odd or out of the ordinary? Yes. <laughs> For now. <laughs> That's right. Well, let's pray.